Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org. This is about the crucifixion of Jesus, his last moments uh, in his life before he died. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but This man claimed to be king of the Jews. But Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And then Luke 23, verse 44 to 46. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Let's ask God's blessing upon the word of God today. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather here this morning and for the inspiring time of praise that we have experienced together. We thank you for the word of God that brings to us a reminder of of one of the most important events in history next to the resurrection and the second coming, and that is Jesus' death. And so I pray that you'll be with Tim as he brings the word of God to us. Paul said that, I determined that I would know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, for that is the power of God to salvation. So I pray that you'll anoint him with your power and presence, fill him and inspire him. Open our hearts and ears, and we pray that you will illumine the word by your Holy Spirit, just as you inspired it by the Spirit in the first place. Father, we thank you for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Dave, and um, yeah, I, I know uh, many of you today or this week have been praying for him. I was actually surprised to see him come here today, and then he said he wanted, wanted to read the word, so that's a pastor. You can't keep a pastor down on a Sunday morning, so that's awesome. Thank you for, for doing that. Uh, well, this morning, um, we get to talk about a topic that is uh, crucial to the Christian faith. If you've been following along with, uh, with us the last several weeks, uh, we've been going through kind of the basics of Christianity and what we believe about uh, some of the basic things, uh, what we believe about creation, what we re- believe about uh, humans, what we believe about Jesus was uh, last week. And this week, uh, we get to talk about what we believe about the cross. You know, there are symbols in life uh, for all sorts of things, right? If you look at a symbol, you can say what they represent. And so just to test that a little bit, I, I, I have a few symbols here. So see if you can get, just by looking at the symbol, what it represents. What does this represent? Yeah, it represents America, right? The American flag is a symbol that represents America, all right? What about this one? Which one? Yeah, so that's the elephant, the Republican elephant, right? You guys, It's hard to see, I know, a little bit. Uh, and then this one, just to you know, make sure we're, we're even. That's the, the Democratic donkey, right? It represents the Democratic Party. Uh, this one? 
Yeah, it means caution, right? You see a yellow triangle, you know, in any language, uh, you got to be cautious. This one? This is a universal... This is a universal symbol for third place. <laughs> you know, Rosemary is so nice to me usually, but she has her look at me right now that could kill. <laughs> Are you voting for the reading for the Dodgers right now at least? Oh good. It's Oh good. All right. That's good. That's good. It has it's been rough. And so for all you and by the way, I'm sporting my my Dodger uh, logo. It is it is a hard go right now. That game last night. It was hard for me to go to sleep three hours afterwards. But uh, tonight, I think they're going to play with the grace of God and win, because I prayed for that. Uh, what about this one? A white flag waving means surrender. Yeah, you know, white flag. It means right away. You know what it means. What about this one? Yeah, all you hippies, you yelled out right away. It stands for peace. Well. Uh, we all know what these symbols represent, right? I think you guys all pretty much aced that. Uh, what about this last one? What does this represent? Yeah, it re represents uh, all of the things that you're saying, which wrapped up in one means Christianity. You know, when, when Christianity was in, if it was in its infancy, uh, the church was trying to figure out a symbol that would represent what they believed in. And so they had a few things that they had discussed, one was, um, you know, a loaf and bread, which represents the, the small child that brought that to Jesus, and he made this miraculous uh, 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 thing that he did where he fed thousands with just that loaf and fish. Uh, they also thought that, that maybe the rainbow was a great sign of Christianity because that represented the promise after the flood uh, and, and the promise that God made to Noah. But ultimately, though, the symbol was uh, roundly received and repeatedly put forth as the best symbol of Christianity and, and the faith of that is the cross. The cross represents what Christianity believes in and what they stand for. And beginning with the early church, Christians started making the sign of the cross. They would put crosses in their homes, on the exteriors of their homes. They would wear a jewel, a jewelry with a, a cross coming down from them. And in this day, this was exceedingly unlikely because the cross was, as a song rightly suggests, an emblem of suffering and shame. It was not a positive thing at that time. It's not the kind of thing that you would adorn to your home or your body, yet nonetheless, the symbol in history of the world and to Christians today speaks of the cross. We, we sing of the cross. We, we wear a cross necklace. Raise your hand, who's wearing a cross necklace today? We've got a few of us. And the question that we ask, like if around the world, it doesn't matter what language you speak, what color your skin is, if you hold up the cross, people know that is, stands for faith in Christ. And the question is why? Why is the cross so unique? Why does it matter some 2,000 years later? What does the cross matter? And so we're going to start by answering a series of questions. Uh, if you have your, your message outline. Um, uh, I didn't leave a lot of blanks, so you're going to have to write some things in. Uh, if you need one, we have one over at the table. If you're watching online, we have them on our website, EncounterCCB.org. You can quickly go there and download that. And the first question that we're going to ask today is, what is crucifixion? Crucifixion was the most uh, barbarous, shameful, and painful way to die. The ancient Jewish uh, historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. 
And when it comes to the matter of uh, crucifixion, it's an exceedingly painful way to die, so much so that they they made a word that uh, was invented to describe uh, what uh, this means. And excruciating is a word that is meant to describe what is felt by those who are put to death on a cross. Excruciating literally means from the cross. And those who were crucified died by a painful, slow, excruciating death by asphyxiation. There was a uh, CSI episode several years ago called uh, Double Cross. And in that episode, there was a woman who was crucified in the church. And and Gil Grissom, the lead investigator on the case, went into a lengthy, lengthy explanation of how the person actually died. And he explained that when someone is crucified, uh, their body is slouching so much so that uh, air is, when it's exalted from their lungs, they struggle to breathe, right? So when you blow out, you have to then push up on your your nailed feet that are to the cross just to get another breath of air and then go back down again. And the result of that is that uh, it's very hard to breathe. In fact, you can go several hours uh, this way, and you could you could you could hang on a cross for several hours before you actually died, and you could be sitting in the the heat of the sun or the coolness of the air at at night. And some uh, just to put put an end to what they were feeling would sometimes just slouch and just you know ultimately give in to uh, the pain they were feeling. The body underwent such a a brutal, devastating series of of suffering that oftentimes underneath the person at the foot of the cross would be feces and urine and sweat and blood and tears, all just the body uh, ending and coming to its, its end. And I tell you all this not to be overly dramatic, but to give you a real sense of what the crucifixion actually was. And so when someone says to you, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you don't just flippantly say, oh yeah, isn't that great? You actually know what actually went into his decision to die on the cross. And that leads to the next question of how did Jesus die? The Bible simply says that before Jesus was crucified, he was scourged. scourged. Now that means that he was uh, tormented or beaten. Like we all know that, that he actually died on the cross, but it started in the wee hours of the morning, even the day before, where he was beaten. Scourging occurred when a man would be uh, stripped, often, oftentimes naked. His hands would be shackled above his head and usually around a pole. And an executioner would then take what was, is called a, a cat of nine uh, tails. And it was a, a handle for, uh, that was made of, of straps and these mini straps uh, had like metal balls on the end. They had hooks on them. They would use uh, like animals' teeth, sharp things. And they would, they would uh, whip the person on their back, on the backs of their legs, uh, with, at, with, with great precision. These executioners were good at what they did. The balls, the, the hard metal uh, balls at the end of the whip would hit the flesh and tenderize it like a would at stake. And the, the hooks and, or, or the teeth that were on these straps would tear into the muscle and the skin. And as they ripped back, the muscle and skin would be flying in the air. If you were in the area where, when a scourging was happening, you would, you would uh, have you know, skin and, and blood of the person in your hair because it just was flying around. It was a brutal exercise. Oftentimes, a hook would get uh, into the, the rib of the man, and as they yank back, a rib bone would fly out. Jesus was repeatedly flogged. 
and the bones shook, and the muscle was torn, and the flesh removed, and he went into shock. His body was covered in blood. He was in excruciating agony. And this after a sleepless night where he was exhausted, and he was run through a series of false trials, and he was beaten by a mob. Anticipating and foreshadowing uh, the prophecy some 700 years in advance of Jesus dying, the prophet in, in Isaiah says this in Isaiah 52. He says that his appearance would be marred beyond human likeness. Marred beyond human likeness. If you knew Jesus back in that day, you knew what he looked like. If you saw him after this incident, you would not recognize him because his body was so brutally damaged and destroyed. Most people would die during this process, even before getting to a cross. The Bible then records that a crown of thorns was placed on his head, and then, uh, uh, then he was forced to carry his own crossbar to a place of execution. And this crossbar would have weighed, weighed upwards of 100 pounds. So as you see the cross, I, I, we, we built one today. Hopefully you can see it online. Um, this is, uh, this is the, the beam that would be at the place of execution in Galgatha. Uh, that was already there, uh, where he was beaten and where he was tried and said that he was going to be put to death was where the cross beam was. And this is what the cross beam uh, looks like. This is, uh, this is to scale to the, for the most part. Uh, the typical cross in the uh, Roman times was about nine feet high. Sometimes they, they record 13, but during this time, the best estimation is that it would be a nine foot high cross. This is nine feet. And the beam would be in between six and seven feet, depending on the wingspan of the person being executed. And so they would take this beam that normally would weigh about 100 pounds. This is a lot less. I can hold it one-handed. And they would carry this after being beaten out, into, out of the city up into the place where the execution would happen. And so Jesus, after being beaten and had a crown of thorns placed on his head, put this cross beam on his shoulder and walked out of the city barely being able to take a step because of what he had gone through. And as you know, he actually didn't make it all the way. His body collapsed, and he had to have help carrying the crossbeam uh, all the way to the execution place in Golgotha. And when they got there, the death squad then took over. That's what they were called, the death squad. And usually it was uh, three executioners per person. And they forced Jesus to the ground, they spread his arms across this crossbeam, and then two people would, like for example, if they had the left arm uh, laid across the beam, two people would, would sit on his arm and hold it down, while the third one took a six-inch spike that was, it was squared and came to a point, and they hammered that through the wrist of Jesus. He who was a carpenter, had nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers of his body at precisely the spot where the radius and the ulna bones meet the carpal of the wrist. Now, uh, getting technical, but there's two bones in your arm. If you feel, you can feel there's two bones kind of in your forearm. They come to one uh, spot into your wrist, right where the carpal is. If you ever have carpal tunnels, right, right, right where that hurts, it's right in that spot. And the reason they picked this spot is because uh, in that spot, it's so... Um, uh, soft, where you, a, a couple swipes of a mallet and, and the, the nail would go straight through to the wood. But yet it was soft enough tissue and, and surrounded by the bones so when the body was hoisted up on the cross, it wouldn't just rip through the skin that the bone would then hold it in place, but it was excruciating pain for those who went through it. 
And then uh, I'm going to have actually uh, some guys help me, uh, Doug and Noah and Mike. Uh, when the body was uh, actually nailed to this cross beam, then it was time to actually uh, put the body up. And so typically uh, what, what you have is you have uh, somebody who, uh, when you see a cross, if you, if you have one on your necklace, it's like a lowercase t. But back uh, in this day, which is more, a little bit more accurate, uh, this was actually placed right at the top. I thought I had help. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Anybody? Uh, oh. <laughs> so I'm going to have you help. I can actually do this part. Doug. So at, hold on. at this point, you know, Jesus was nailed to this, this cross beam. And then they brought him up to the, the post here. They would have two soldiers grab the body of the person and lift them up. There would then be a third person that would be on a, uh, a ladder of some sort in the back to guide it into the slot right there. I mean, uh, I think it's good enough. <laughs> good. I just want to put that in there so it doesn't slip down. Thanks, guys. So at this point, then, uh, the body would then be hanging by the wrist from that cross beam at the top. And the feet then would be uh, nailed into the post uh, right here. And I'm going to take a moment to pause and allow you to breathe and take that in a little bit. And I want to tell you something extremely profound. Everything that happened up to this point, the, the, the beating, the, the flesh being just ripped apart so where Jesus would not even be uh, recognizable, then being hung on that cross, I want to tell you something extremely profound. That Jesus chose the nails. He willingly chose the nails and this process. He was powerful and mighty enough that at any point he could have stopped this, but he let it go on and he chose the nails. And he did that for one simple reason. Because he loves you. And because he loves you, and because he loves you, and because he loves me. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. So at this point, he's bleeding, he's sweating, he's suffering, and he opens his eyes and he gaze, gazes upon the crowd. He sees the people that are executing him, the people that have now betrayed him, who he thought was on his side. He sees the people that are, are yelling at him. They're yelling things at him like, like, what kind of God are you where you can't save yourself? If you're so powerful, just jump down from there, you coward. They're yelling, crucify him, crucify him, probably throwing things at him, spitting at him. And that's the scene he gets to see. This person who lived a perfect life, who had never done nothing wrong, sits there barely being able to breathe. And this is the scene that he's looking out at. He also sees his mother. He catches his mother's eye. 
with Mary, whom he loved, and she is undoubtedly emotional and devastated and distraught and destroyed to see her son suffering in this way. And like so many other men, Jesus did not retaliate. There's, there's historical records of people being crucified on the cross, like, like spitting back at people and yelling back at the people who were doing this, you know, defiant to the very last end. But this, everything that was recorded that Jesus said while on the cross had nothing to do with that. In fact, here's a couple things that he did say. He said, Father, forgive them. Who does that? Father, forgive them. He then looked at the, the, the thief that was dying next to him and took some of his last dying breaths to save him, to evangelize while hanging on the cross. And he says to that guy, today you will be with me in paradise. And then he tells John, his dearest friend, to look after his mother. All of these words from the cross are of love and of grace and of mercy. And then he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries into your hands, I commit my spirit before his final words are recorded in John 19, verse 30, where he says, it is finished. And so the next question is, why did Jesus die? Why did he die? How in the world could Christians call the crucifixion of Jesus good news? How could this process be seen as something that is positive? How could we possibly celebrate every year on Good Friday? How could we possibly every Sunday here at Encounter Church do something that represents the communion, uh, his body being hung in communion? Why on earth would we commemorate this occasion? And to answer this question, the answers to that question are found in Scripture. And the Bible repeatedly tells us uh, of, of the crucifixion of Jesus. And then it's followed by the words, for. Right? And, and the words for are a transition to the theological significance, the events and then its meaning. And this little word for has big implications. And so I'm going to start 700 years before the crucifixion uh, and work through the testimony of those who knew him uh, most intimately. And I'm going to rip through a couple of verses to give Hannah a, lot of, uh, a big task here. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was wounded. And then look at the word for. That was what happened, and here's the reason, the theological importance of why he was wounded, for our iniquities. He was crushed, or for our transgressions, sorry. He was crushed for the theological importance, our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 12 says that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for, those tra for, his for the transgressors. Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered. That's what ha ha happened, right? And then here comes the four. Why? For our trespasses. Romans 5.8 says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says that for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 John 2, 2 says that he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. And finally, in Galatians 3, 13, it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Here's why the crucifixion is good news for us. Here's why we celebrate it uh, uh, each week and, uh, and, and on holidays. The crucifixion is good news because it is for us. It is for us. 
Theologically, I'm going to get a little geeky. Theologically, we call this the, the penal substitutionary atonement. Big words, I know, sorry. Uh, but it, but um, there is no right understanding of Jesus and no true gospel. Uh, there is no true gospel. There is no forgiveness of sin and salvation apart from penal substitutionary atonement. And I'm going to explain those three words, right? You know what word penal means. It means there's a punishment, like, like uh, you, you are punished for doing something, right? If, if mom says clean your room and you don't clean your room, you get punished for it. Penal means there's suffering. The wages of sin is death, we know. So that's the punishment that you get. The next word that we get in that penal substitutionary atonement is substitution. It means that there was a play, someone who stood in place of. If you have a substitute teacher in, in school, it's not your normal teacher. Someone would took the place of the teacher, the substitute. And in this way, Jesus was the substitute. We deserved to be on that cross, but he substituted in my place. And the last word, atonement, um, the point of atonement is that sin is, has separated us from God, and that sin must be taken away so we can be forgiven. That's the atonement. And so the next question that we have here is, uh, what exactly did Jesus' death accomplish? What did his death accomplish? Now in this, I will say that there's many things that Jesus' death accomplished. Literally, there can be uh, dozens, but I'm going to focus in on two. The first thing that I will say is that on the cross, Jesus is our justification. Jesus is our justification. It's a big word, I know. And let me just say this. I, I, I'm using some of these words not to make me sound smart, not to uh, just prove I have a fancy software on my computer that throws us in here, or not to sound like uh, geeky like Pastor Dave or Pastor Mike. I use these words because they're in the Bible. And so if you read the Bible, if you read the Gospels, if you start studying and you see words like, like a substitutionary atonement or, or justification or propitiation, you can say, hey, we talked about this at, at church on that Sunday, and now I have understanding why. And so we are a Bible-believing church, and so we're going to use the words of church. And this word justification appears in the Bible. Galatians 2.16 says a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What's he talking about here? Justification. Well, here's a quick little uh, a de definition of justification that I put here, is that it is the act by which God moves a willing person from the state of sinfulness or injustice to a state of grace, which means you are injustice. God moves a willing person from the state of sin to the state of grace. That is justification. So let me give you a, um, a, a, a bit of a... Um, I was going to skip some of this. Uh, yeah, let me give you a bit of an imperfect analogy on this and how this plays out, okay? Uh, let's say my son commits a, a crime, a pretty serious crime, aggravated robbery or something, right? And he goes to court. The judge says you are guilty. And then he says your sentence is five years in jail without the possibility of parole, you need to go to jail for five years. And as the guards go to put the cuffs on my son to begin his punishment, I step in and say, I'm going to pay the price for my son's crime. I want to do the time that he deserves. I will serve his five-year sentence. And so the guards go with it. And instead of putting the cuffs on my son, they put the cuffs on me and they lead me to jail. And so I take on my son's punishment. And my son then gets to walk out of the courtroom as a free man. He takes my innocence. I take his punishment. I go as a guilty man and serve his sentence while he walks out of the courtroom 
bearing my innocence. You see, we deserve to be on that cross. We were the ones who committed the sin. And the wages of sin are death. But Jesus came, and it's, it's, it's clear that He came because He loved us so much. He came to substitute for us, thus justifying us in the eyes of God. Now, I wish that the wages of sin was anger management courses. I wish that the wages of sin were uh, go feed the homeless for a week. Or the wages of sin were uh, come work at church for a week, trimming trees and cleaning out flower beds and stuff. That, then I could, I could earn my way. I could, I could work hard. I could make myself right. The wages of sin isn't get yourself together. Go to rehab. Get your life straightened out. That's not the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And you can't get away from that. And so it's not because of our doing, but all because of the doing of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. Let me give you the second thing that the cross did to us, or for us. And that is uh, that Jesus is our propitiation. First, we said that, we, you heard this word a little bit earlier, First John 4.10 says that in, uh, in this is love, not that we have loved, but God that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just a flat and, and very palatable definition, propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath and anger. God has to do something with sinners because he is just. That's just the doctrine of propitiation. First John, or John 1 John 1.29 says that he had come to take away the sin of the world by becoming the propitiation for the sins of the world. The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction specifically toward God. The Bible teaches that God himself was the only means through which his wrath can be appeased and sinful man can be reconciled in him. In the New Testament, the act of propitiation always refers to the work of God and not the sacrifices of gifts offered by man. The reason for this is that man is totally incapable of satisfying God's justice except by spending eternity in hell. There's no service, sacrifice, or gift that man can offer that will appease this holy wrath of God. And that's where Jesus comes in. And he, he, he stands in our place, and part of what he did is to be the propitiation, which means to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The only way for God's wrath of a sinful man and to be appeased, and for us to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So what? All of this is probably great information. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, uh, hey, I knew what the cross is all about for 30, 40, 70, 80 years. I've heard this stuff. I know what it means. And maybe you've accepted what he's done, and, and, and you are... You are, uh, you've, you've accepted his grace and his righteousness. Maybe all of that has happened and you're thinking, well, why does it matter in my life today? How can the cross make a difference in my life today, tomorrow, this week? What does something ha that happened 2,000 plus years ago, how can that change my life today? And so I want to close the message by just talking about that a little bit. A little over a month ago, uh, my daughter gave birth uh, to this little guy. Can you see it? It's a little hard to see. This is Quentin. Uh, there's one. Here's another one. Isn't he cute? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I know it's tough to see over there. 
Uh, this week, we, Jamie and I went and, uh, and, and spent some time with him. And little babies are awesome just to be around, right? Uh, and here's a picture of Jamie feeding him. It's kind of hard to see, I know. I wish that we were indoors a little bit better. But I got to thinking that day after we saw him uh, this week and, and thinking a little bit that even though he has a loving mother and father, even though he has the greatest grandfather and grandmother and lots of cousins and, and, and aunts and aunties and uncles that will love him, that he will inevitably face hardships and disappointments in life. He will get his feelings hurt. He will feel betrayal. Somebody will push him down in the playground and hurt his feelings. Some friends will tell him that they don't want to be friends with him anymore. All of that's going to happen. He's going to feel these disappointments. And I can't. I, I, I kept thinking, like, I can't help but to think, can I just protect him from all of that crud that's going to go on in his life the next 60 years once he gets on the outside out of their, out of their little house? And I was just thinking that there's just so much disappointment and, and trials that go on in our lives. He's going to face those. You can't avoid them. I wish the same thing for my kids. They can't avoid that. And maybe you're here today facing some of those trials, some of those hardships of, of physical pain, mental pain, spiritual, emotional hardships or struggles. Psalm 77 was written by a guy who was going something, through something very difficult in his life. Maybe he was going through something like one of you are going through right now. And his name is Asaph. And while he's going through his pain and trial in his life, he is sensing that God is silent. And he says in verse 1 through 2, he says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. And I, at night I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. You can feel, this is a prayer of, or a psalm of lament, a prayer of lament. You can just feel his anger kind of coming through this. Asaph doesn't tell us his pain here. It could have been a physical ailment. Could have been a struggle with a relationship, a financial strain. Maybe his donkey died that day. We don't know his pain. We just know he's going through something that's really bothering him and is very hurtful. And you can see in verse 4, he says, uh, You kept my eyes from close, closing. I was too troubled to speak. His troubles were so great that he couldn't sleep at night. Anybody here have a night recently that kind of kept them up thinking and worrying about things? Asaph did that. And when you know someone going through a, a difficult time, something tragic has happened in their life, you know, when maybe a friend or a relative or your, a son or a daughter and something really horrible happens in their life, what is the first thing that a good Christian follower will tell that person? That you're going to pray for them, right? Isn't that what you tell people? I got in a car accident this week. I'll pray for you. My kid's really struggling in this area. I'll pray for them. Maybe someone's house goes up in flames, and you'd say, I'm going to pray for you. Or if someone dies of the coronavirus, you say, I'll pray for you and your family. Maybe a friend gets laid off of work, and you say, I'm going to pray for you. Now, I'm sure you would never expect to hear someone on a Sunday morning from this pulpit on a, on a worship service say this. But folks, prayer sometimes isn't the first thing that you should do in a crisis. Prayer isn't the first thing that you do. 
I'm not saying it's bad or it's wrong. I'm not saying it's damaging. I'm just saying it's not the first thing you need to do when you are overwhelmed or disappointed by tragedy in your life. Asaph prays, and it leads to some very real and haunting questions. Check out verse 7 and 9. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Is he, is, is he in anger withheld his compassion? Have you questioned God like this before? Where are you? I have prayed to you to do certain things. Where in the heck are you? This is what Asaph is saying right now. He's wondering, is God truly a way maker? Is he truly a miracle worker? Is he truly a promise keeper? Is he really the light in the darkness like we sing about? There's a word in the New Testament that describes this, this silence that people experience and the, the, the painful experience of God's silence, and it's the word mystery. When you talk about the mystery, it's just God feeling absent. What is your mystery in your life? When have you felt God being completely just absent in your life? I'm sure it doesn't take long for you to bring it up of what it was. Now, a month ago, I made uh, a provocative statement that prayer shouldn't be the first thing that you do in times of trial and struggle. And maybe you're thinking, well, if it's not prayer, what am I going to do first? Let me show you in verse 11 through 12 what Asaph did once he tried prayer. This is so awesome. Verse 11 says this, I will, what? Remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. What's Asaph doing here? Yeah, he's, not, he's not praying, but he's focusing on who God is. That's the place to begin, to focus on God to focus not on your circumstances and where you are in life, but before, but before you focus on your hurt, before you focus on your disappointment, focus first on God and remember who He is. And what greater symbol is there to remind us of God and the love that He has than the cross? And so if you remember one thing leaving here today, it's these three simple words, remember the cross. Remember the cross. When you see the cross, be reminded that he loves you so much, so much that he chose the nails that affixed him to that cross. Remember the cross. When you see the cross, be reminded that he defines who you are, not the thugs at school or the adult bullies who try to define who you are. When you see the cross, be reminded that the same God who parted the Red Sea for Moses, who shut the mouths of the lion for Daniel, who cooled the inferno for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who rescued Jonah from the belly of the whale, the same God who does those things is working in your life. He's dealing with your struggles and your pain. Remember the cross. When you see the cross, be reminded that you are covered in the righteousness of Christ and that you are justified because of the cross and that no sin is so great that it separates you from your heavenly Father. Remember the cross. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that you will do, that will ever be able to separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. 
That's because the punishment has already been paid. The thing that you have to do now is just accept it, to live it. I'm going to ask our, our uh, communion team to come up here and uh, help uh, with, with communion. There's something in the church, it's called a sacrament that, that, you, that we do that helps us remember the cross, that helps us uh, remember and, and put into uh, to, uh, our thinking what I just described on the cross, and that's communion. And so we're going to pass that out right now. Uh, communion is for all of those who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so if you have put your faith into Christ, if you've accepted what, what was done on the cross and you said, yeah, that's for me, and you've given your life to Christ, this is now a celebration, a time for us to remember the cross. If you have not done that, we ask that you would do that this morning. What better time? We'd love to help you out. If you're watching online, connect with us. But for right now, as we, uh, as, as we pass these out, uh, uh, take the bread and the cup and just hold on to it, and then we'll come back and take communion. I want to bring out the verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23, and 25. We just described the, the death and crucifixion of Jesus. Well, the night before this went down, he knew everything that was going to happen. But the people that were at the table with him that night, during this last supper, they didn't know. And he was explaining it to them. Jesus was. And he was telling him what was all going to be going on. I want to focus on these, these words, remember, because that's what we do with communion. We, we remember what happened, uh, not for just uh, a historical reference, like you're going to take a test, like you've got to remember facts, but remember it because it should change your life. Remember it because it should mean something to you tomorrow morning when you wake up and, and go to work or school or, or whatever you do. Remember it when you're at the doctor's office waiting for a test result to come back. Remember it when... Uh, when things don't go right in your life, that's when remembering the cross matters and makes significant difference in your life. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took this bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he was explaining to his very best friends, the friends that would betray him later on, he was saying, my body is going to be broken just like this bread was broken, and I'm doing it for you. And then he says to his disciples, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me tonight, but also forever. So encounter church family. This is the body of Christ that was broken for you willingly broken for you. Take it in remembrance of him. And before this, they knew the wages of sin was, was death, but before this you had to sacrifice something, you had to do something, but he said, that is no longer it. I am going to be your justification. I am going to be your sanctification. I am going to be your propitiation, which you know they were like, the heads were spinning at the time not knowing exactly what that meant, but Jesus raises the, the, the cup of juice. He says, in the same way, he took the cup after, saying, after supper, saying, this cup is now the new covenant. I am the new covenant. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as I drink, and do this, what? In remembrance of me. That's a key word, in remembrance. In remembrance you do these things. So family, Take the cup that represents Jesus' blood that he spilled for you and do it 
in remembrance of him today. Will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. We love the scriptures. We accept them, Father, as true. And it is our request, Lord God, that for those who have never made this commitment and put their faith into you and the work that you did on the cross, Lord, that today they will do business with you and their lives will be changed. And for those, Lord, who do know you, Lord God, may they, may they never lose, may I and we never lose sense of the magnitude, the magnitude and the, the majesty of the crucifixion of Jesus. Today, would you capture our affections? Uh, would you reignite us with a deep passion to know and to love and to serve and to entrust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Father, may we remember well, may what happened 2,000 plus years ago on the cross continue to, to change us today and tomorrow and next week. Thank you, Lord, for your love, for loving me so much that you willingly chose, chose this process. You willingly chose the nails for us, Father. I don't know why, but you did. Thank you. We love you. We pray these things in your Son. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org.